0: up until then you know you just feel like you're whispering things you just feel like oh i can't i can't say the words white women out loud i can't say that white women are a problem in this industry out loud but once you give yourself permission to name your first episode white women killed yoga <laughs> I, like things absolutely- change
1: welcome to mom strength a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as The Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations, where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mom Strength. This is your host, Surabhi Beach. I just sound like a squeaky mouse because I'm recovering from a cold after my kids have coughed on me all the past two months, actually. Held out until now, and uh, it's finally got me. But I am so excited to be interviewing Jaisal Parikh from Yoga Vala. She is an Indian-American yoga teacher, movement educator, podcaster, author, and disruptor, working on creative solutions for equity in yoga. She co-hosts the Yoga is Dead podcast and offers movement education through the lens of social justice. I love that. Jaisal's aim is to uplift those who are feeling isolated and marginalized by the yoga industry. And her pronouns are she, her, they, or them. Hi, Jaisal. Welcome. Hi, Surbi. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. I follow you on social media. I have actually, you're probably one of the first people I followed in 2020 when I actually like joined Instagram. I was on it before, but I like never really on it. <clears throat> and That's I think a big I, honor. <laughs> yeah. I think I found you through the Movement Maestro. I think you were on. I
0: love Shantae. Yes. She had shared your
1: podcast and I was like, oh my gosh, like there's people like this who exist, who are talking about this stuff that, you know, a lot of us as Desis or Indians, you know, who grew up in yoga families, you feel like part of you has been taken away when you are not even shown in the yoga world here. And to have people who are openly talking about it is so refreshing. What can you talk about your journey into yoga? And I'm gonna mute myself so you don't hear me. So the audience isn't hearing me cough uh, coughing <laughs> nonstop. Yeah. Um so yeah, tell me about your journey into yoga and like what your experience leading up to, let's say, your yoga is said, podcast and work.
0: Yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> I'm here um, for it. I know it's funny when we talk about like our experience in yoga, I think. Like, my tendency is to want to start at the place where I started asana, but the reality is growing up in an Indian household, a Hindu household, my experience with yoga started way before then. I just didn't really realize it till later, right? Because there's all this overlap. And so, I think if I'm being, if I'm reflecting on the whole story, I was exposed to yoga as a kid or different elements of yoga as a kid. I had aunts that did different types of yoga. One of my aunts did like laughing yoga in India when that was like a big trend. Or you'd see yogis on the street and, you know, your, your family members would talk about it and, you know, have different opinions or ideas. And then, you know, we did bhajan growing up, like bhajan was a huge part of our life. Every single weekend, my parents did bhajan and dragged us to somebody's house (laughs) to be a part of it, right? (laughs) And so all of these elements were kind of around all the time. And then I would say as I started getting older, some of my like older family members would start doing like branaeam. Or we'd go to like, there was a family member uh, who ran a yoga center out in Western Massachusetts. And so oh, wow. like, so
1: this is in the U.S. Yeah, in the US.
0: U.S. So like, he had, he they still exist today, by the way. They're called the Satsang Center. I still get, I'm on their email list. I still get their emails. And so like, this was like a person in my life that was very much like, oh, you should do yoga and all the parts. And he's very into Brian I am. And so I would started like really practicing asana, I would say, when I graduated from college and I came to New York to work and a friend of mine was like, oh, you need to come to this yoga studio. And I was never an athletic person. I never like really understood my body or had a connection with my body in any real way. You know, I, I was in a very academic sort of <laughs> lane, right? Like study, 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 get good grades, all that stuff. And it was never really encouraged to be, you know, physically too active, like dance class meaning Paranadyam for us Indian folks. Same, <laughs> same. literally the same story. And <laughs> right, yeah. so you learn some things from Paranadyam. There's overlap there too. But uh, I started to connect with my body more when I started going to these classes. So I was very grateful that I found asana and like could do some things. And, you know, it's like a weird experience because it's, it's accessible in some ways because it's not like, fast. It's not like lifting heavy, but in other ways, you're like, I cannot bend that way. And or or what the teacher is telling me to do, my body just doesn't do. It doesn't make that shape. So it started out as like a pretty good experience overall. But as I started getting into it, I realized like I needed to modify or adapt or that there needed to be more wiggle room, I would say. So I got a lot of benefits out of it. And then there came a point where I was just like, you know, living the New York lifestyle, which is work hard, play hard. Probably a little too much. And I realized like this wasn't working for me. The job I was in was not working for me. Um, You know, it was showing up in my body in a lot of ways. All the relationships in my life were showing up in my body in a variety of ways. And I was like, something needs to give. So I decided to quit my job and I was going to go to India anyway for family friends wedding. And I was like, while I'm there, I really wanted to get deeper into yoga. So I went to India and of course our family friend was like, just get your certificate. Just get the teaching certificate. Don't worry about it. I'm like, I don't want to teach. He's like, no, no, don't worry about it. Just get the, just do the yoga instructor course. So I, I also it. feel
1: like feel your like story crazy. needs to be like a movie, like the whole experience <laughs> growing when up in, common, U- or like living in New York. I think it's kind of common.
0: It is, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I did the yoga instructor course at this uh, yoga university in Bangalore called S Vyasa, or it's like the Swami Vivekananda the base school there. And I came back and I was, you know, trying to do other creative things with my life, but I decided to teach on the side just to like make some money while I was figuring out what to do. And it turns out that was my calling, right? <laughs> so I see, you know, I started teaching little by little, and then I started teaching in a studio in Boston. And then I ended up meeting my husband and moving back to New York. And I decided to do more education and kind of go down that whole line. What I realized is that when you enter, well, I didn't realize right away, but when you enter the yoga industry as like a teacher, it's like a completely different experience. You, and mm-hmm. I, I will say, I went in with blinders on, I think a lot of people do, meaning you just kind of assume like, oh, you're not in a corporate environment and everyone here is just like love and light and wants to be happy and whatever, whatever. Wants and so,
1: good.
0: yeah, yeah, wants to do good. And you don't realize like it's a collection of small businesses with zero oversight, <laughs> And so I experienced a lot of discrimination on many different levels, right? Like racial slash ethnically, I also experienced body discrimination. I also experienced, you know, just all sorts of marginalization because of my various identities, right? And so it was a kind of a long process of awakening to it and, and like coming to terms with the fact that, oh, this industry is not what it seems to be. You know, and then I think I was like comparing my experience to what my husband was experiencing, like corporate finance. I'm like, "You're why are you not experiencing as bad hmm. a situation? Like yours is supposed to be the worst industry, like at least, you know, on paper. And I'm like, every person I talk to, I feel like I'm being like harmed. So the podcast really came about because Tejal and I, Tejal Patel, who's the co-host of the Yoga Z podcast with me. Um, Tejal and I met in a training that was run by two white women. And it was an anatomy training, and we always talk about this. We get we got catfished into the training. It was they were advertised as a job opening for the studio, and then you go in and you do this interview, and then they have this group interview, and they basically tell you you're not good enough to be working there, and that you have to take their training in order to work at the studio. Oh my gosh! So we kind of like fell for it, and I'm I am glad in the end I did take it, and I guess it led to the podcast, but <laughs> in a way I'm glad that I took it because like, I knew I wanted more anatomy education. And I will say that the education that they gave wasn't actually accurate, but it got me started on the path of like getting curious and learning about the body. And so, and in that training, I got to meet Thagel and Thagel and I, um, instantly connected almost, so it was like, almost like trauma bonding because of the way that they were treating us. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was like three people in this training. It started out with four, I think four or five, maybe, but you know, one person was online and, you know, we were two daisies in a group of like essentially three by the end. So there was like a white chick and us two daisies, and then these two white women and the power dynamic was made super clear to us. And the value that we brought to the training was made super clear to us, which was zero. You have zero value. Your cultural understanding and background has zero place in this environment. And I think because it was such an extremely obvious environment, it really like Bonded Thayjal and I to each other, and but also really opened my eyes. Like, okay, this is like a line now that is being crossed in a new way. And so for us, that was like the beginning of just having somebody to talk to about our experiences. And you know, at first it's like whispers, like, "Did you hear about this?" Or I have to tell you what happened at this other place I work at. Or my coworker did the craziest thing. I like, I can't even believe it. I have to tell you.
1: So and it's kind of like it's almost like if you're by yourself. it's hard to talk about it to, with anybody to so internalize it. You, you feel yeah. isolated, you internalize it. But as soon as there's that one person who gets it, you're like, I feel free because I can talk about this. I don't have to internalize this this hatred, essentially. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who are listening who only know Western yoga, which like, I don't even want to call it yoga, but yoga is intricately tied to our cultures, like yeah. to Hinduism, um, you know, Bharatanatyam, to like and Indian to the, many culture. other religions
0: right i'll just say hinduism is the main one but like my exposure because my parents took us to every freaking temple around right we went to the jain temple we went to the swaminarayan temple we went to like whatever was around even the sikh temple like so you just see that there is these underlying themes and overlap of ideas across all of these different ideologies that developed in the same region you know and and that brings value to understanding how yoga kind of fits into this broader context and the diversity of thought.
1: Well, and that, I I think that's the other thing is people think there's one way to do it or one way to even teach or like one person is, and I hate the appropriation of the word guru, right? Or like guru. I'm like, no, it's not guru. It's guru. And not everybody who teaches yoga is suddenly a guru. And like, I don't know what region your family is from in India, but like we're South India and I grew up in Mumbai And my, I didn't realize, like you said, I didn't realize that I had been learning uh, yoga since I was a kid, just from living with my parents and my family, my dad practiced it every day because he had asthma. So he would practice pranayama and he would do all the breathing techniques. He taught it to me. So when I had a cold, I just knew it. And then years later, I'm hearing about alternate nose breathing and this breathing. And I'm like, what? Like, this is the stuff that, no, doesn't everybody know this? And then you realize like, oh, this is part of yoga. So like listening to you talk, I'm just like, wow, like there's other people who have the same experience, but you know, your voices are silenced even in, in teacher trainings. So tell me what happened after that, you know, when you two connected and then this was in New York.
0: Yeah, this was in New York and we connected and we became each other's like standing boards. Like every few months we get together and be like, oh my God, like, tell me I'm not, you know, out of my mind in thinking that this was like you know you feel so gaslit in these experiences you feel like I'm the one that's wrong everyone else seems to think this is okay and so I think having each other really put it into perspective that like our experience what we were experiencing emotionally and internally is valid so I think that validity really like put propelled us forward and then honestly so they had this like retreat that she did um just outside of the city. It was like a weekend retreat and I decided to go and we were having one of these conversations and she was like, we should do a podcast. And I had no idea really what podcasts were. I like, didn't listen to them at all at that point. And I was like, sure, okay. And I'm thinking like, this isn't gonna go anywhere.
1: (laughs) It's like one of those conversations that you're like, yeah, sure, sounds good, but like nothing happens.
0: Like, I don't know, we spent like a year kind of like working on it, but not really seriously, but we were like, you know, kind of working on it. And what we realized at the end of the year was we needed to start from scratch. Like, we were getting excited about the idea, but it just wasn't gelling. And then we came up with this concept the yoga is dead concept. We came up with the name and the concept of, like, haha, what if we just say the things that we think are like quote unquote killing yoga, right? And that really changed the trajectory for us in terms of our focus and our like tone and everything because. Up until then, you know, you just feel like you're whispering things. You just feel like, oh, I can't, I can't say the words white women out loud. I can't say that white women are a problem in this industry out loud. But once you give yourself permission to name your first episode, White Women Killed Yoga, like things change.
1: I love the transparency there because like they did, you know, like I remember my first yoga class here. It was after... You know, boyfriend and I broke up. I was sad. I I needed something. And then I was like, I I always loved, you know, yoga. I'm like, I'll go to a class. All my friends seem to be going, my white friends. And I went to this class and I was probably 25, 26 at the time. And there was like a 19, 20 year old maybe, like teaching this class, giving out life advice. Leave all your worries at the door. I'm like, um, it doesn't quite work like that. You don't just like compartmentalize your worries in a box and like put it outside and like the entire class I felt myself getting more and more like agitated I was the only person of color everybody was dressed in like a sports bra like with as much skin exposed it was hot yoga too and I felt beaten down like at the end of that class and I remember going home and telling my dad and he was like that's not yoga
0: (laughs) well can I just say something about that just on a practical level I've gone to hot yoga I've enjoyed hot yoga in the past practically practically speaking I don't understand the like not wearing a lot of clothes because you tend to slip and slide on your own skin I'm like sometimes you need clothes to create friction <laughs> sorry that's just a random aside I but I, mean, I have I mean, never understood that
1: I feel that way with any sport where people are sweating a lot because if you don't have clothes it's skin on skin rubbing you're gonna get more <laughs> rashes and I'm like,
0: it's just a complete aside has nothing to do with anything. I get it's personal choice, but it's really, I'm like, is that the right choice? (laughs) They
1: got to show off their bodies ultimately, (laughs) which is like, you know, I'm all for people showing off whatever they want to, but it's also like, is this part of the practice? No, you know, this is not authentically part of the practice. Um,
0: It speaks to the culture is what you're saying is like, is the studio culture one that's encouraging practicality or is the studio culture about like explaining your own sexuality in some way yeah and it's okay like if that's what you want to do that's fine but it like essentially if you're so worried about how you look in the studio setting are you getting the max benefits versus like for me, like yoga is this thing that helps me connect with me and kind of forget about other people's opinions or thoughts about me. Exactly. Yeah. And so if the studio culture is such, and I'm not saying it's any one person's fault or whatever, it's also like New York city. It's like a whole, you know, whatever yeah. there's a whole <laughs> system behind it. But if you're, if you feel this pressure to dress sexy in your yoga practice, it really speaks to how effective your practice has been over time, which is that you're still so worried about what other people think about you,
1: which is like, not the point at all. Obviously. Yeah. Which
0: yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I I feel bad for you. I feel like, okay, you're not really getting the benefits, which is to help you care less about what people think about you care more about what you think of yourself.
1: And like, for me, it's a distraction when I can't stretch and move comfortably. So like yes. people are wearing these high-waisted leggings that like cinch everything in. And I'm like... If you can't breathe, like you know, I work in public health. Like you know, a lot of my yoga clients. Are, oh, I have. I know. I notice I can't control my gas in this position. I'm like maybe wear looser pants, so you're not like being forced to squeeze yeah. everything in nonstop. And like even just simple changes like that, like wearing clothes that actually fit and are comfortable for you to stretch and move in. Yeah. Um,
0: and it's going to be different for different bodies, for sure. Like there are some people who I know, like. Like, I just get so hot. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not judging you. But it's just this idea of like, you sometimes it's obvious that there is like a cultural element within a certain space where everybody feels this pressure to like show off their looks versus like legitimately you're choosing to wear less clothing because you were so hot or because it's or tighter clothing because you, if you feel more supportive or whatever it might be, like, you know, there's a lot of gray area. I just feel like kind of. Each of us needs to be introspective about like what our it why. is. Yeah. 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 Our why. Like why are we should, are, are we do we feel externally pressured to dress this way? Or is it like, I really want to dress this way because it helps me in my practice.
1: Mm, yeah. Thinking about the why behind. Yeah. Why. yeah. I love how opposite is
0: true. When I was in India, we had to work gurtas and gurtas are like long. So they were actually kind of in the way too, because like fabric would get stuck under your butt when you're trying to do certain poses like a seated forward fold or something you know so it's like there's a middle ground in there too
1: I am um, I love like loose pants to practice in yeah me too. but yeah if you know it's it's also what I grew up with so it's like easier for me to say that but yeah people grow up with just tights all the time like maybe that's what they're comfortable in but understanding the vibe of the clinic or yeah. the studio you're going to and is it pressurizing you to like fit the aesthetic or can you just show up as yourself? Because um, exactly. of all practices, if you can't show up as yourself in yoga, like, like, that's not, that's not it's good. Heartbreaking.
0: It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So tell me about what went on in the podcast making process.
0: Well, we have six episodes that are out that, so it's a limited series and we did Karma Capitalism did, Killed Yoga and it talks about like volunteer, forced volunteer work within our industry and labor practices. We have Vinyasa Killed Yoga. It's all about like how fitness industry has influenced um, our, our industry. We have, oh gosh, it's been a while now. <laughs> We've Killed Yoga and it's all about like um, sexual harassment and abuse within our industry. We have 200 Hours Killed Yoga, which is all about like these organizations that kind of gatekeep on the certifications and things like that. And then what's our last episode? have to think about it
1: you know the 200 hours thing I wanted to talk about that because I remember I'm you know I'm a physiotherapist so when I used to work in clinic what was your last episode
0: I'm looking it up okay so when I speak (laughs) it vegans, vegans, of course I was just talking about it this week it's killed yoga it's all about diet culture and it is on I wish we had kind of said The words cultural appropriation flat out in that episode, we did not, but it is actually about cultural appropriation too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So much cultural appropriation. And like, I remember when I was in working clinic and I had a patient come, a white patient was like, oh, I've started yoga. And I thought they were telling me because I'm Indian. Cause I was like, oh, okay, cool. Because back then yoga wasn't as popular when I first became a physio. It was just starting to become more popular. Then I realized that person had no idea that yoga was even like Indian or like South Asian or anything. Mm -hmm. And so they were just telling me because they were just telling me that they started a new sport or new activity. And I was, I was offended because I was like, it would be like if you went to an Italian and are like, oh, I started a meatball spaghetti and, you know, spaghetti factory or something. Or like, I'm starting to make dinner and and sell it out of my backyard. And you're like, I'm Italian. You you're you're telling me this like, this is my culture, right? And so, first of all, my culture was erased from their class. Clearly, they didn't they had no idea that it was even Indian. I I said it to them like, oh, you know, it's like Indian, and you know, originated in India and like long time ago. They're like, oh, no way, I didn't know that. Obviously, there was no people of color in the class. Mm -hmm. Uh, I live in Toronto, very multicultural. Most classes do not have people of color unless maybe it's like, you know, Chinese or like uh, East Asians, but a lot of South Asians aren't welcome. I've talked to so many people who are like, I just don't feel welcome in classes and I feel the same. And like somebody asked me, one of my uh, friends who's a physio did her 200 hour teacher training and was like, oh, where did you do your training? And I'm like, I didn't but like I grew up with it. So I don't think that I'm any less trained than you are because you took 200 hours of teaching in the past two months or whatever. But it's this overemphasis on certifications versus lived experience. Mm -hmm. And it is erasing people with lived experience of like a lifetime of lived experience in the culture. You know, would I be able to go and teach everybody everything about yoga? Absolutely not. But there's Most 200-hour
0: so teachers can't, though. And I speak yes. even to my own experience after taking a 200-hour training. I was like, uh, you, you know, you're you're very ill-equipped after a 200-hour training to teach the people. You're told to you can teach anyone after 200 hours, and the reality is you absolutely cannot. It's not true at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the whole credentialing and, you know, yeah, the whole system is very, like, colonized, right? It's like a... Absolutely overvalue on credentials versus like that lived experience.
0: I was, I think there is a need for credentialing to, to the degree that like, it's very easy as we know, even with credentialing in this industry to say whatever you want and market whatever you want and kind of quote unquote, get away with it. You know what I mean? Like to just make up claims essentially. So I think credentialing exists to try to mitigate that to some degree now, how successful it is, we could have probably, like, a whole back and forth discussion on that, right? Like, I don't think it's necessarily that successful. I think there are some some credentialing aspects that are, and then some are not. But I do think, like, coming from a South Asian background, if you feel like you were exposed to your culture, because not everyone who grew up in the diaspora does, right? Not everyone who grew up here feels like in the U.S. or otherwise feels connected to their culture in a strong way. But if you feel like you had some connection to your culture, there is context there that is very much important and is what the folks who take teacher training in the West are actually having to try to learn, right? So it can be helpful in the sense that like even if you are of South Asian descent and you maybe have like exposure to your your culture but it's limited, very limited in scope, right? Maybe you start to see different points of view, right? It opens up, it expands. And so that is very useful and it's useful for everybody because one of the, there's so many misconceptions that happen in yoga because of like taking something that's based in Eastern ideologies and then trying to transport them into Western ideologies and to fit these completely new underlying assumptions and people don't understand that the cultures have underlying assumptions attached and associated with them i think that's where a lot of harm is actually done Is like if you don't even understand that like like for example the co- the question always comes up is yoga a religion how do you explain to somebody that the concept of religion in india is in south asia is fairly new and actually it's new in terms of like the world because abrahamic faiths are what created this idea of like you're either in a religion or out of religion (laughs) right yeah religion as a concept is like a finite thing of like you either believe or you don't believe in this like binary only yes it's a very binary like oh do you believe in god or you don't right yeah yeah and that like really i mean i think it started with like judaism and islam but and then of course it expanded into christianity but for For Vedic religions, it's not so, right? It's like this plurality of thought and people didn't all agree with each other. That's why we have the Vedas and the Upanishads. Yeah. Right?
1: And I feel like in, in, I can't speak to all South Asian countries, but in India, like everyone, not everyone, but like almost everyone is spiritual in some way. It is part of the culture to have that spirituality,
0: well, and spirituality <laughs> encompasses, we should say, because again, in the West, there's this very binary of like spirituality means you believe in God, and in the East, in in like all of these different cultures, atheism is a part of that. You can, <laughs> you can have an atheistic based belief system. So I think again, just realizing that there there's not a it's not a binary out.
1: Yeah, it's a huge spectrum,
0: right? Um, Versus here, it's like oh, you either do or you don't. You're either atheist. Or you're spiritual. Like,
1: mm, yes. You be both,
0: actually. Yes.
1: And for me, it's it's even the like whole individualism and community thinking. Like the whole way of thinking is very different between mm-hmm. Eastern cultures and Western cultures. So even to like teach someone why yoga can't be an individual practice, mm-hmm. it's you know social justice and community, like caring about your community is part of it Mm -hmm. it can't you can't separate the two you know it's people just think they can sign up for a class show up and not I'm not even talking about the people who are practicing the teachers they just think it's like a job they just teach it and then it's like done and I'm like then you're just teaching a flexibility class or Mm -hmm. a strength class or whatever don't call it yoga because it's not what it is Mm -hmm. um it's not you know it has to be for me anyways yoga can't be and for you too it's not just asana and for <laughs> there's somebody who sent me a message yesterday about a company called asana but on mm-hmm. their web, do you know that do you know about this
0: yeah it's like a um project management
1: okay that's I everything. i didn't hear about it till yesterday yeah but on their on their website they're like we pronounce it asana yeah or you could pronounce it the other way the other sanskrit way Asana. I'm like there's no other Sanskrit way that is the way to pronounce it mm-hmm. but it's this like we're the actually the right way or you could practice it the wrong other way
0: mm-hmm. and it's like
1: delineating like they know better because they made up a pronunciation establishing a hierarchy exactly and it's just very um it's erasure right erasure of the cultures and I don't think people who haven't had that happen to their cultures will truly get why it's so harmful because mm-hmm. to them, they're like, but it's cool. It's fun. Why can't I teach it? I learned it. I want
0: to teach. I mean, it. honestly, people from our own culture sometimes don't really understand it. Right. No. Because of the deep longing to be accepted into the hierarchy that exists.
1: Yeah. Especially right? the ones that grow up here. I find that for me, I moved to Canada when I was 10 so for, because I did Bharatanatyam in India, I did Karnatic music training in India. I, I grew up enough, I think in India to retain some of that, but when I moved here, I definitely wanted to fit in. So I definitely, I, yeah, actually
0: with, it's so interesting you say that. And I mean, again, like there's no right and wrong way to feel about it, but from my observation, it's actually the opposite too. Like, I feel like folks, cause I was born here. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you, like when you are born here and you're especially like not, most of us didn't grow up in like. very brown community if you did maybe things are different but you experience racism right off the bat when you're a kid like you know it's not doesn't miss you when you're three years old (laughs) so so like you're very hyper aware that like people feel that you do not belong here from a young age versus like when you grow up from what i've seen and this is just my limited exposure but from what i've seen is folks who grew up in india they have no reason to believe that they don't belong in life exactly yeah right like there's Yeah. So there's just like this assumption that, oh, why shouldn't I be in these spaces? Why don't I deserve to be here? Like, there's no, and then you come here and actually like, it's interesting because folks who who have come here, like even from my family or whatever, uh, you know, friends, and it just, it's like an interesting thing because they don't even notice racism as it happens. Mm. Right. Like, it's almost like you're, cause you're not attuned to it. And in a way it's good because it shields you emotionally, but in a way it's also like, you, so, you, can if you don't recognize the, the dynamic it's easy to think that like you're accepted when the reality is like you're not accepted no so like there is this kind of like um dissonance that you think no. you belong more than you do and you don't no. even realize that it's working against you and so what sometimes I think happens is folks who who come in with that like they internalize failure in a different way because they think it's that it's individualized oh it must be me they're not accepting it because of my work or whatever it is versus realizing, oh, there's a systemic issue at play. Like they're never going to accept you in, in, in who <laughs> that you was, are. That they're... was
1: me though. Right. Like when I moved yeah. here when I was 10, that was my first experience with racism, like day one in the schoolyard. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, just not even like subtle, like <laughs> racial stir- slurs telling me to go back, like all of, and I was shocked because I was like, but like, why? Like, yeah. I just didn't understand. And exactly like you said it was an understanding that it was wrong but also wanting to fit in so mm-hmm. internalizing that even
0: people here want to who have grown up here like want to fit in like why wouldn't you like that yeah. you want to be a part of the group you that has belong. it all
1: yeah belonging right, everybody is wants to
0: belong, right but at some point like hopefully your eyes get open to the fact that there is this very unfair hierarchy and it harms everybody involved in in establishing and maintaining the hierarchy to different yes. degrees, right? Obviously people who are at the top are hurt and harmed a lot less, but they're still hurt and harmed.
1: They are. Yeah.
0: You know? And
1: they lo- I feel like you also lose part of your humanity when you can't, when you're always on top and you can't relate, right? Like you literally can't feel in the same way. You can't empathize. I'm like, that's robbing you of your own humanity. Yep. And that is a serious issue. And like, so my brother was 16 when we moved Your I was 10. He didn't get impacted by racism as much. Even though he got the slurs, he knew he wa- who he was. He was like almost an adult. Whereas because I was like pre-puberty, mm-hmm. I like absorbed all of that. Yeah. And I internalized it. And it wasn't until I had my daughter. and a half years ago that I really started to accept myself and understand that it wasn't a me problem that this is a systemic issue but it took me a long time to figure that out because I was a long
0: time too when I grew (laughs) up here
1: (laughs) I know you just hide it away and you just want to desperately fit in but you realize no matter how hard you try you're never going to like be the cultural you know yeah
0: and you know I think this is the for us as like south asians right there's a couple of things there's a couple of bigger issues one is that you don't even realize what you're giving up in the process right like because mm. it's so much of it is giving up your own identity okay yeah. i'll give up my accent okay i'll give up my language okay i'll give up my oh, cultural then, practices food. yeah and over time yeah my food and all of those things and then over time you realize like oh i actually sacrificed a lot of my identity and that identity like at some point in your life you like yearn to get it back you know yeah. you're almost like wait that was my connection to my ancestors that was a connection to my body physically how it shows up today right like this this drastic change in location and food and whatever is having an impact on me physically mentally emotionally on levels I didn't even realize until I got older and it all catches up to you so I think at some point like you don't even realize you're giving up all these things and then you don't even realize how you're perpetuating it onto other people right because we have a lot of anti-blackness in our community yeah right so like, then we're like part of the same problem, we're, part so of the whatever problem. we're, yeah. we're only exacerbating it and making it worse for other folks yeah. in the process. And then even within our own culture, like, because, you know, white supremacy and caste are not unrelated in how they operate. And so like, I think one of the biggest things, you know, this is the joke in our culture. The joke is like the Indian uncle who always thinks he's right. Hmm. That's the joke. I have one. Yeah. Who doesn't have one? Everyone has one. Every freaking uncle is like pretty much an uncle who's like steeped in patriarchy and thinks oh, yeah. they're right. Oh yeah. And yeah. like, let me tell you about your area of expertise. Cause even though you've studied it and worked in it, like, <laughs> like my, my husband and I joke, cause he's in finance and he's, you know, he does really well in what he does. He's really well respected in his field. And some Indian uncle will come to him and be like, I'm gonna give you some right, dad, Let me tell you about your industry and how you should be doing your job. And he's like, okay, listen okay, this, this is what
1: happened to me with my uncle.
0: yeah, I was uh- um
1: I had just given birth at home, <laughs> yeah. he demanded to show up the same day. Oh my God. I was like, I have no clothes
0: on. I'm yeah for my nipples. Let me tell you how you should be postpartum and you're like,
1: I was like, I'm pretty sure I have postpartum depression, but like, nobody cares about me. You just want to meet my baby. I'm like, you just flew from a plane. God knows what germs you have. You're not coming to
0: meet my baby. Um, And you know, in our culture, that's the equivalent of the white man who thinks he knows everything and can demand that everyone should believe what he believes. They perpetuate the same things. And like, I, I do find that when
1: people aren't willing to open their eyes and see the truth of how they also... Play into this, you know, white supremacy, and, and women play into patriarchy too, because mm-hmm. they become bosses and then they treat their their female employees like crap, you know, mm-hmm. doing the same things that um you know a man typically would. But like, we perpetuate the same issues if we're not opening our eyes to how it affects mm-hmm. us in our own cultures. And I love that you brought that up. It's such an it's such an important point that I think so many South Asians are, they feel victimized by racism, and so they think that they're they're the most affected and nobody else is I'm like no no you are affected but also all these other people are even more impacted and you have to be part of the change
0: we I ran this like this program with um colleagues and friends Susanna Barkataki and Lakshmi Nair a couple years ago and we called it belonging and it was for South Asians and a big theme of like leading this group of folks was like the idea of sitting as both the oppressed and the oppressor simultaneously at the same time. How do you navigate that in your life? Because it's not like you want to turn, like the tendency is to turn one of those facets off. Right. And only focus. Like either it's like, oh, I'm only the oppressed or I'm only the oppressor. And to realize like, no, most of us live in this gray area all the time. Yeah. And it's okay. And it's like, we don't have to like, it's not mutually exclusive. We can work on our own equality within spaces where we feel oppressed and also work on the quality of others and spaces that we are doing the oppressing
1: right yeah give me both and I feel like when you liberate yourself in one way you also liberate others with you right so it's I I've been on that journey myself I found having kids to be the biggest driving factor for me because my kids are biracial. My husband is white. And I was like, Oh my gosh, my kids are not going to learn anything about my culture because yeah. I have distanced myself from my culture so much through the years. And just because my parents live here too, doesn't mean, and like they eat Indian food all the time. doesn't mean they're going to learn Indian culture. If I, their mother is not practicing it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this is like, you know, therapy and all that stuff to kind of come to these conclusions, but it was very eye opening for me how even someone, like you said, like born in India can be so distanced from their own culture because of this desperate desire to just belong and fit in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a sadness for all the years that I lost, but also there's a hope and excitement for all the years that I have that I can continue to embrace parts of myself.
0: Yeah. Well, and speaking of motherhood, I mean, that's something like I'm moving into. And as I think about it, it's the same idea. Well, like in your day-to-day life, you get to take your own identity and values and belief systems for granted, because you don't have to like explain them or like externally, you know, create any semblance of its existence. And now that I'm having a child, I'm like, okay, wait, how do I pass on the right values? And you have to really create like an intentional idea of like what are the rituals going to look like how how are we going to actually in practice make this an external thing that gets absorbed yeah. because like yeah we have it internally and there's like you know my between my husband and i and we have like you know our shorthand or whatever <laughs> but for somebody new coming into this scenario yeah they're right? they
1: growing into this world where you know they might have not had the same experiences or they won't yeah. right they and don't. so and it's
0: it's, and it's also like, yeah, okay, we love Indian food already, for example, right? Just like a silly example. We love Indian food already. So like on a Friday night, we're like, oh, what should we order? Like, and you know, if we're like, yeah, yeah, I want this, I want that. But like a kid is like not going to have any idea and not going to immediately have the taste buds for those things. So you have to like intentionally cultivate, Yes. you know, a connection and desire. For and those part
1: things. of that is like for me, like cooking it, right? Because yeah. my my kids, we my parents and I, we live in the same building, so like you know fortunate in some ways um in many ways but like we'll go to their house my mom will have made food so we're not part of the experience of making the food we're just eating it you're showing up We're showing up or like when you order takeout you just eat it but i'm like we also order pizza we also order thai food we also order burritos so it's like for them the ordering of the food isn't any different than any other culture it's like you know one of the things that i'm working on is like wearing saris more i have so Mm -hmm. many but actually wearing them more Mm -hmm. taking them to the temple to expose them to other cultural aspects um listening to like Hindi music Carnatic music uh dance like I've started to take a Bollywood dance like these are all so intentional they take work because I had separated myself from it for so long
0: well actually it's so funny you say that because my husband and I were one of the things one of our projects for the next few weeks is to like make some playlists that we'd want to play like when the baby's around like just music just exposure to music that like you know nursery rhymes are great and also like I don't only want to play nursery rhymes and so I was but like you'll, what's the drive
1: yourself insane with that
0: <laughs> right and just like I was like yeah I want to make like a Indian music playlist like every like you said everything from classical to Bollywood because like I just want this this kid to have exposure to different things and part of that different things is also their own culture that's it right
1: because that's unique to them that another kid of a different culture is not going to have that and I'm like they have to have that connection to their culture Mm -hmm. if they especially like they don't have to but like I want them to yeah I want them to yeah and it's it has to be so intentional now and that's when I was like I can't let people mispronounce my name anymore because my daughter is gonna listen to all that and be like wait why is this okay so I guess people can mispronounce mining too Mm because like you know it's 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 all um it all matters so much more now it's not just you it's like this little being who's gonna absorb everything and yeah that's when I really started caring about all of this more and I feel like it's driven me to be a better human um and I'm excited for you because it's gonna be like obviously it's life-changing but I think it also um sharpens your mission like really I think it helps strengthen your resolve for like both from a social justice lens of like okay these things really matter but also from like a prioritizing your own life and like what really matters um can you tell me about your pregnancy and like some of the medical guidelines I remember you shared something with me about food yeah (laughs) so tell me about that I mean
0: this one was like very, very shocking to me. So the pregnancy, I will say overall, I've been very lucky and things have been going smoothly, knock on wood. Good. Um, Still got a few weeks left. And for the most part, like my care has been great. And I will just say that at this point, I have chose midwifery care. And we could talk about that because it's like such an interesting topic, like the misconceptions around midwifery care, but it's been great. And I'm with the midwife, <laughs> so I see... Uh, I have to meet like all the different midwives within the group. And most of them have been excellent. And then I saw one sort of like in the middle of my pregnancy who basically told me to just not eat carbs. And I was like, what? Excuse me. And like, this was not based on like, basically, hello, nice to meet you. Let's talk about how you shouldn't eat carbs. And I was like, wait, did my tests say anything? No, like it was my tests were all normal like all my blood work is normal. Everything is like going great. You know what I mean? There's like no medical reason as far as I knew for her to be making this recommendation to me.
1: And even if you did test positive for
0: gestational diabetes, it's like, this is before I even took the test by the way. Oh my gosh. This is before the test. So the test was like the thing she was like trying to talk about, but I was like, wait, what? Like, is there, I'm like, is there a reason for concern here? Like that we're having this conversation. And like, there was just no reason for concern. And I ended up speaking to another midwife later who I had a better relationship with and had trust in. And they were like, yeah, there was no medical reason. This person just says, this is a blanket statement to everybody. But at the time I didn't know that. And I'm like, that's wrong on so many, it's still wrong on so many levels. Like that you're telling blanketly people to stop eating carbs. I'm like, you realize like fruit is carbs, right? Carbs are essential. Carbs are essential. I was like, the misconception, the levels of misconception. I was like, not only are carbs in everything, first of all, and not only are they essential to your well-being, but now you're telling like a pregnant person who needs more energy in a day, who's a vegetarian, by the way. So like, I'm not going to go keto all of a sudden. No. Oh my God you know what I mean? Like midway through pregnancy, you want me to go keto? Is that what you're trying to say? And then (laughs) on that level, I was like, okay. And then there's the the race and ethnicity level of this of like, so you're basically telling me my cultural foods are bad.
1: Yeah. Like I can't eat roti rice.
0: Yeah. And whatever, like my mother-in-law thinks is like a good thing for me to be eating during the pregnancy. Like, oh, have this, like the, it's supposed to be good for the baby, blah, blah, blah. You know, like all of those things. You're basically telling me all of that is wrong. So I was like very, this is weighing on me. And like, you know, at that point I was having like monthly appointments So like for a month. I was like stressed out. Like, you're oh, like, my, oh God, my God, you know? like, is this
1: true? Well, and I think that that's like, you're somebody who is, you know, probably on the better at advocating for yourself than like the average person, because you've yeah. already spoken out about other yeah, things. For sure. Imagine someone who's like already got like no voice. Well, of... I
0: understood the issue. I think the thing is I understood the issues and the layers of the issues and why it was upsetting to me, but it still was hard to advocate because still hard, yeah. you're in this situation where like, if you advocate for yourself, does this mean now your level of care is going to go down? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're in a
1: vulnerable state.
0: Yeah. You're in a vulnerable place of like, so I ended up booking the appointment with the midwife that I knew I, I trusted because I like had spoken to her. I knew her a little bit of her family background, like she was married into an Indian family she had an Indian husband. So I'm sure she's like dealt with, she could understand the cultural aspect food. of it, yeah. right? Even if she didn't understand the other aspects. Luckily she did. She understood the whole diet culture aspect of it. But if she hadn't, I was like, at least she might understand that like racially and ethnically speaking, like this is very not a nice thing to say to somebody. So l- luckily that conversation went like, really smoothly, but I-, I was nervous even then. Cause I'm like, what if, my level of care goes down, but I was like, I specifically chose to speak to one other person because there was like a, I had called the front desk and I was like, who do I deliver feedback to? And I was afraid, like if it gets to the head of the group or operations, like now they're going to like, I'm going to be the difficult patient through the whole group. Right. They're not going to want to be kind to me. They're not going to want to be compassionate towards me. They're going to like roll their eyes every time I walk in the room, like who knows what other outcomes that leads to. So my, like, it's funny because my husband's reaction was like, she's just like, this person who told you this is clearly nuts. And like, yeah, they <laughs> you know, and should be working. Honestly, there. between us, we're like typical white woman, honestly. And he's like, you should just ignore what she said. And I was like, no, this is really upsetting me. And even if it's, I need to find out one, if it's personal, like, did she just see a chubby woman walk into the room and make assumptions? Is there actually something medically wrong? Like, I need to discern what's going on here. And then secondly, if this is a blanket statement to everybody, then I also can't just leave it at that. Like, that's not, like, then this woman is doing this to other people.
1: Then, well, and that's, both of those are concerning because that's not her medical exper- expertise anyways. Exactly. Like food, nutrition advice is not a midwife's or OB's expertise. Refer to a dietitian if you're worried.
0: Exactly. This was like if you have a concern, we can talk about, like, referring me to an expert, but I don't, again, you haven't brought up an issue or concern. Yeah. That's awesome. it was like a very disorienting experience.
1: And it's very hard in pregnancy because I found that more than any other time in my life, you feel deeper. Everything is
0: yeah more deep. Yeah, for sure. The anxieties are like- And the deeper. anxiety, <laughs> and you're
1: like, you just want everything to go right, right? And you're like, yeah, no, it's it's so hard.
0: I hope that didn't impact your food decisions. It was almost like every time I'd eat something like naughty, quote unquote, I'd be like thinking of her, like spiting her. So funny. But then like, you know, you do the, you do the tests. So I did what I also think is important. And I don't know, you've probably talked about it on here, but I didn't realize until I started, I went to this midwife group that there are actually different ways to do this gestational diabetes test. And like they, one of the things they offer is a food based test. So you don't have to do the drink. And I then I also in this interim period had talked to like my friend who's a doula about it, too. And, you know, one of the things she was saying is like, you don't have to do the test at all. So for me, I want I needed to do the test because my goal at this point is to give birth in the birthing center and to give birth in the birthing center. It's required to do a gestational diabetes test because you have to prove that you're low risk if however i was giving birth in the hospital it would not have mattered because i would still be giving birth in the hospital regardless, regardless of the outcome now it can it be helpful absolutely it can give you certain information about like the baby and this you know the shape of the baby as it comes out and can help prepare the correct outcome but is it absolutely required no i didn't realize that So i think it's just worth noting and then i think like every one of my other friends i talked to had done the drink and they didn't know that you could do like not only was there alternative drinks because you're usually given like glucola but there's like other like organic (laughs) versions of glucola you can take but then there's this meal test which is what i did and i talked about it with my midwife and the pros and cons and my midwife was like well the glucola test is standardized so it's good in terms of like if you're trying to measure yourself against like what well, how other people do on this test, there's standardized data, but it doesn't measure how food actually reacts in your system. So the midwife group like recommends the food test because you're when, with the glucola, it's straight up sugar. Like who's Which I always
1: think like it's probably the least healthy thing to give a pregnant person anyway. It really is. It's but like, like- this sugary drink, oh, it's gonna give you it's gonna give you diabetes if nothing else will, because First of all, nobody's just drinking sugar, like, and it's disgusting. Of sugar. Like, it's just so gross.
0: Well, and maybe some people are drinking like a... soda or something, but like, I'm just saying most yeah. pregnant people are not yeah. chugging sugary drinks one after the other. So it's like kind of a weird test to be giving as opposed to like, and it's not really those...
1: been validated. Right. So it's like, it's a guess, but
0: even still like a lot of people test and a lot false... of people get false positives. Right. Yeah. Because your system, your system is not used to having that amount of sugar or carbs sugar. without fiber or protein alongside of it. So right. the food test is like a set meal that you're supposed to have that has the same amount of carbohydrates as the glucola test. But the difference is you're intaking it with fiber and protein the way your body would normally digest. So it's a, it's a better representation of whether you are experiencing gestational diabetes or not, but I it doesn't have that. standardized data. Right. So those are like the pros and cons, just putting it out there. Cause I was like fascinated. I'm like, okay, all right. And that helped me inform my decision. And some people might want the standard test and that's great. And for me, I was like, oh, I w- I would think it'd be more accurate for me to realize how food interacts in my system. So I did the food test and I passed it and it was great. And I was like, I don't see this woman created stress for a month for no reason. Yeah. And there are other ways that are like, it will show up in your body, gestational diabetes, meaning like high blood pressure. Like One of the biggest things is preeclampsia, right? That's what they're right. testing for. And then I also didn't know this, but in other countries, they don't do this test at all. They do a urine test every single time you go to the doctor and they check your blood sugar levels in your urine.
1: Hmm. That seems a lot simpler.
0: It's also because like, so I was talking to Samit's cousin, my husband's cousin, and she was like, yeah, they do this urine test. So basically like if one week your blood sugar levels are high, they're basically like, what did you eat this week? Like, don't, you know, Don't
1: try eat to eat that. That.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So you can make you like real three time. slices of
1: cake right before your appointment,
0: <laughs> right? Like, but it's like also real time yeah. adjustment based on what is actually happening. So I was like, oh, that's fascinating because here you get the label and you're stuck with the label, that whole pregnancy. Oh, and I've had
1: to- clients who've had And this is the thing, it's not always weight either. Some people think it's body size or like
0: And And I'm I'm a big person and I'm not completely healthy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And like I have had very thin patients who ate well and were like, listen, I know my diet is good, but I tested positive. And I'm like, And it's because your body's not
0: used to eating that much sugar. Exactly. Some studies show that like the healthier you eat, the more likely you are to fail the test because the glucola test not necessarily the food test
1: the glucola. because yeah. again they
0: don't have data on the food test but the glucola test because again it's straight up sugar and your body's like uh you don't, I don't we don't do this so it's like has trouble handling that high level of
1: one of my friends ate a bagel and yeah. then drank that and so the combo of the bagel which is like carbs and sugar with the drink put her over the edge yeah. and I was like probably it's because you ate a bagel bagel but yeah
0: yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was like a fascinating thing where I'm like, oh, so here you get this label and then you're stuck with it. And then even if you show that it's a false positive, like, cause you have to do blood, you have to like draw your blood every couple hours for like the rest of the pregnancy, basically. And even if you show your blood sugar levels are normal every single day after the test of the false positive, you are still going to be labeled diabetic, you know, gestational diabetes. Versus like the blood, the urine test, they'll be like, oh, okay, like don't eat that. And every week they'll just test it and make sure that like, it's normal, you know, that it's normal again. And you're not yeah. stuck with the label that then determines like your there options. Where you give
1: birth and outcomes. like, yeah, all of and this, also so. like the assumption that it increases risk for your baby, because yes, there has been data to show that if you have diabetes, it can. But when the test has so many false positives, like, why are we putting so one much One in four, on it? I think,
0: is the stat. By the way, one in four people get a false positive on this test.
1: That's high.
0: It's very high. And then you take the three-hour test, but it's still not accurate. Anyway, there's a whole thing. But a lot of people get false positives on this I test.
1: almost declined it with my second because I, I was like, what's the point? Like, I've been eating the same. It's going to be fine. But because I had home births, again, I was like... Just in case I'll do
0: it. Make sure the risk level is low, right? Yeah,
1: because I didn't want them my iron was already low. So I was like, okay, I don't want to then have a low iron and um test positive and then have a home birth, right? Like just in case. So yeah. Took it anyways. But I really do value midwives because they give you options and they like inform you more about these things versus the good ones do, (laughs) hopefully. Not all of them are. It's true. Equal. <laughs> and same with OBs, right? Like good ones will give you that informed consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you said is like unsolicited advice when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. I remember no other time in my life have I gotten so much random advice. And I'm like, listen, I'm a physio. People are giving me movement advice. I'm like, why would you think that I don't know this better than you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, better people, than you? Yeah. <laughs> people are giving me advice on like birthing. And I'm like, what like totally inappropriate like what to eat what music to listen to like everyone has an opinion
0: it's why I waited so long to put it on social media and I will say my community that I've cultivated on social media has been like so great and supportive for the most part and like when it comes to pregnancy I actually haven't gotten any crazy comments I'm also very guarded about what I post around it but still, like, even so I expected worse than I got, I think when you put out, again, a controversial podcast, you're used to like, you know, oh, yeah, negative opinions and thoughts and whatever. And so, you know, I was kind of prepared for that. I'm very lucky that, again, I've cultivated this community of supportive people. So I didn't get it. But in real life, it's a different thing. I was just on my yeah, way the grocery somewhere. Store, yeah. yeah, I was just on my way somewhere like the other day and I had an Uber driver or whatever. And I was telling the driver like, oh, yeah, I'm taking like a couple of weeks off before I gave birth and the Uber driver was like, why you should stay active. You should keep working. I'm like, first of all, staying active and keeping working in my job are two different things. Like staying active in my job means sitting at a desk at a computer, which is not good for my body. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but this person just had like all these opinions around like how I should be. I'm like, you have no idea what the context of my life is to be giving me this type of advice.
1: I know, and like she's crazy. And again, it, goes and back it was like to a that man too, on top of that. It was a man. I was like, I figured it was a man. It's also <laughs> the binary, right? It's like, why does it have to look one way or the other? Like, it can be yeah. a spectrum of, like, every woman in this world is unique and different. Every person is different, so why can't? It's obviously
0: you? projecting his own stuff onto me, but I was like, yeah. I, I don't need to be hearing your no, you don't and need I to hear was, that during practice. And I was so mad. I was so mad because. I went to bed that night and like those comments were swirling around in my head. And I'm like, I, this is living here rent free. And I really don't even respect what this person has to say. I don't agree with it. I don't believe in it. I wish I could just like whoop, take it out I and know. like put it in the trash can. But for some reason I'm sitting here at night, like thinking about these words and you know how ridiculous it was, hey, I, and I cannot, you know, all, I, all all my practices and I still can't help like can't I control know. that it's like in there.
1: Yeah, just, I always just told myself, in hindsight anyways, I was like, this is what I should have told myself, is like, I know my body best. Mm -hmm. No stranger, even the doctors, midwives, they don't know my body better than I do. You know, you literally know your body best, and you know your baby's body the best, because your baby's living inside you, Mm -hmm. and so you will always do what's right for you. Like, that's kind of what I kept telling myself through. It was Mm -hmm. easier with my second, because I, like, learned. Mm -hmm. This was my first- every comment would like bug me but with my second I was also pregnant during the pandemic and let me tell you it was way better because I was at home I didn't have to see anybody yeah. didn't have to hear strangers comments like with my first people would be like oh you're so small like your your my you're my bump are you sure like people would literally are you sure your baby's healthy and I'm like I'm just a small person
0: yeah my baby was eight pounds we're fine like also the vast different, like people's bodies just show differently. It's so incredible.
1: It's, it's just, and these are subtle comments, but yeah, they live in your head. And,
0: and I've gotten like people, I've f- had friends who have the exact opposite experience who are like, they're, their yoga teacher. One of them is a yoga teacher and said, my clients were like, are you sure you're not having twins? I'm like, what is the point of saying any of that? I
1: know. Yeah. Because then you get the other extreme. Oh, wow. You're so big. And you're like, yeah,
0: what? Like why are you Is there like my some body? Goldilocks size you're supposed to be during pregnancy? I yeah. don't know.
1: Like it, it'll never be like I like the same day. I remember in the elevator one day a man was like, oh yeah, you're a man was like, I think you're going to have a boy. I can tell because you know, the way you're caring, I'm like, caring. excuse me, you with your own children, you now are a magician and can figure out other people's like, nobody asked you for your opinion. Yeah, and then someone else was like, Oh, you're for sure having a, a girl or whatever. And I'm like, I don't care, you're like, your opinions don't matter, yeah. but people will give it anyway. So, yeah, yeah I think just setting matter. that boundary and being like, Listen, don't really need to hear that, I'm busy or whatever.
0: You know, um, what? the other thing I realized is that like everyone's internalized sexism comes up a lot. Mm oh, you're having a boy, this means X, Y, Z in my world. And like, like, oh, that's a very interesting thing that that's what you associate having a boy with.
1: Being a boy, yeah.
0: Or um, like, you're having, oh, you're whatever, you know, I'm having a boy. Well, I would say male, because I'm like, we'll see. We'll do a gender reveal when this kid's like seven or something, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. for now. And I'm like, oh, all your biases are showing up of like, you know, what you think each sexes and it, you hear from both sides it's very interesting talking about internalized patriarchy as women mm-hmm. I hear a lot of that as a woman I'm like wow this is what you believe and you, even your own upbringing doesn't negate your now your belief system about your own children
1: wow and we didn't find out till they were born because that was one of my reasonings is like I didn't want people to Especially with the second, because I have a girl and then a boy. And again, based on their assigned sex at birth, um, I didn't want if I was happening, if I happened to have another girl, I did not want people to be like, oh, yeah, because I was like, we're done at two regardless. I yeah. don't care what their sexes are. But yeah, I didn't want to hear that because it's just so devastating for a, a parent to hear that like, oh, you must be disappointed when they're probably
0: not, you know? Um, I mean, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, we were, my husband and I were both thrown that we're having a boy. Yeah. Like we, and I, it's so stupid. I went like, we're obviously very happy about our child being here and healthy and like whatever, all the things, but the first appointment I went to, there was like, you know, they do the heartbeat and my husband looked up like the, the like wives myths, old wives yeah, yeah, tales yeah. about the, the heartbeat. The heart. Yeah yeah and he's like oh according to old wives tales we might be having a girl so this is like well before we knew what the sex would be and I was like okay yeah cool and so we started like researching girl names and all this stuff right and so like and then a couple weeks later it was like oh it's male and we're like oh (laughs) (laughs) and it threw us for a loop I think we got really like kind of like into the idea of having a girl and we both kind of got thrown for a loop and then we started looking up boy names and so we're giving them like you know kind of traditionally gendered names but open to changing it whatever at some point but it's like okay so um boy names are not as fun they're just not not. they're not they're it's a lot harder to find like we found a lot of common ground on girl names and then we like we're looking at boy names and we're like this this sucks this whole process sucks it's like not fun
1: And I found Ashley, so like we didn't know till they were born. So I was like, I had a short list for boy names and it was, there were so few boy names that I liked. So it was like two options.
0: Yeah. We had two, we narrowed it down to two. Yeah. Whereas with
1: girl names, we had so many. We had like seven
0: or eight already that we were like, oh Yeah.
1: yeah. And like, after she was born, it took probably like two days to figure out her name. And that was another thing my, my family hated. I was like, there's a naming ceremony at like four days like why do you want to know right away yeah. I was very like this is how I'm doing it you know mm-hmm. but yeah it was very like like you said like that patriarchal like I need to know first and like I'm I'm right in this in this scenario and ultimately I just kept telling myself I'm doing what's right for my family and my baby yeah. That's it. Um, regardless of what anyone else is you know opinions are Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links and we'll chat again real soon.